Um, before I go any further, this morning we're going to be taking two offerings. We're taking our regular offering first, and then we're going to do our Great Commission Fund offering. And so the, the fellows that are, are going to be taking the offering when they come up here, they're going to grab these. And if you want to participate in the Great uh, Commission Fund offering, just put your hand up when, the, when they're uh, doing their thing, and they'll hand you one of these envelopes, or you can just mark it on your check if you want. So that's going to be happening today as well, uh, two offerings when we do our offering time. Um, and to get our service, you know, we're in our series on prayer. And so sometimes there's some confusion about prayer. And so we're going to show a short video just to help you um, eliminate some of the confusion you might have about prayer. So go ahead, Jesse. Today we're talking about pre-meal prayer. Very confusing subject. A lot of people don't know when to pray, what to pray for, how to pray, who prays. Hey, do you want me to, should I pray? You want to, should we pray? I don't know if, all very confusing. We're going to cover it all today. Let's get started. Chips and salsa. Sometimes they bring it to the table before you're even seated. There's no need to pray for that. Lots of people wonder about appetizers. Do you pray for them? Do you not pray for them? No prayer is necessary for an appetizer if you have entrees coming out later. Salad. That is the most confusing thing on the prayer continuum. If it's a side salad or an appetizer salad, no need for prayer there. Now, if it's a main course salad or you're bringing it out with the rest of everyone else's meal, that then is going to require some kind of prayer. But I put that kind of in a separate category. For the most part, when you're thinking about salads, just remember this. If it requires dressing, it doesn't require a blessing. Do I pray for coffee? No. Are you a psychopath? No one wants to be next to the person at Starbucks that's praying over a latte, you weirdo. Soup. Do you pray for soup? Do not pray for soup. It's only bowl-related soups. Anything smaller than that is always off the hook. I like to say if it comes in a cup, no need to lift up. Everyone knows if you order a hamburger, that's going to require prayer. But if you order sliders, that does not require prayer. It's a little glitch in the system a lot of people are not aware of. Potato skins, no prayer. Baked potato, prayer. Ask any Bible-believing Christian, they're going to have a different policy on fries. Some say never eat the fries. Some say eat as many as you want. Here's the policy on fries. Up to three fries is acceptable to eat prior to the prayer. That brings us to dessert. Always a very confusing situation. A lot of times people go out to a show, go to a movie. Hey, should we grab some dessert afterward? Yeah, let me get the creme brulee. I love cheesecake. Ugh. You don't need to pray for that because you've already prayed for your meal earlier in the night. Do you hold hands before you pray? That depends on your situation. If it's a personal family gathering, some close-knit Bible study of some sort, sure, a hold hand wouldn't be uncomfortable. Now, if you're on a Tinder date, that might throw off the mood a little bit. Most of the confusion surrounding pre-meal prayer comes from when to actually pray. Let me just say, on behalf of waiters all over the world, please pray when your waiter is not there. There's nothing worse than a waiter coming out with two full arms of fajitas and you're over there mid-prayer at Jabez. Like, what are you doing? Last but certainly not least, who at the table volunteers to lead the prayer? Lots of people say the man should lead the prayer. Why is that? I'm not sure. It's 2018. Maybe we should get that rule adjusted at some point in the near future. A lot of people operate under the most spiritual person at the table. They're going to be the one that should pray because that prayer is going to be the most powerful and effective. So if you got obviously a pastor, a missionary, even a Christian blogger of some sort, shoot, even a volunteer youth pastor, that prayer is going to be a little less effective, but 
it's still going to qualify. If you're just an average person sitting at the table with obviously more spiritual people around you, you're kind of off the hook because I feel like God would be like, hey, how come y'all didn't bless this meal? You'd be like, I don't know. Ask the pastor. He works for you. All right. I hope you got some clarity. Is it all good? All right. Awesome. Well, as we continue on in our study of prayer today, um, we're going to take a look at kind of how Jesus participated in prayer. I mean, it's a pretty big deal when, you, when you're talking about prayer that you need to come to the point where you're going to look at the participation of Jesus in prayer. After all, um, you know, the question might be, did Jesus pray to himself? Dear Jesus. <laughs> I'll give you a minute to think about it. Some of you are like, I don't get it. How does Jesus pray to himself? Never mind. Let's move on. Um, I want to take us to Luke's gospel, because in Luke's gospel, we have this account where Jesus is having his own prayer time, and his disciples catch up to him, and they're watching him. So Luke 11, 1 says, and now Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, Teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Now, here we have a picture of of Jesus doing what Jesus did. Jesus often would go to a place of prayer. And here, it's obvious that this isn't one of his secret places of prayer. It is just a, a place of prayer where he went to probably on a regular basis. It was a place where he knew his disciples would be able to find him. And he had been spending some time in prayer, and the disciples have snuck up on him. They are watching Jesus pray, and when he is finished, then they set forth the request, and they're asking him if they will teach him how to pray. Now, Jesus praying wasn't unusual. It wasn't something out of the ordinary for the disciples to find Jesus in a position of prayer. They would often find him in that kind of a position. Matter of fact, in Mark's gospel, though, there's a, uh, Mark put it this way. He says, very early one morning, while it was still dark, Jesus went to a desolate place to pray. This is his secret place. He went by himself. He didn't want the disciples to be there with him. He, he took off and, and he went into a prayer time all by himself, him and the Father having a conversation And it was an intimate time. He didn't want any interruptions for it. But eventually the disciples found him and said, Look, hey, teacher, there are people. They're all looking for you. And so Jesus left his place of prayer and he went and met with the people. In Luke's gospel, then, we have the account of Jesus' baptism as well. And in Luke 3, it says, When all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying... The heavens opened up and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove and the voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son with with whom I am well pleased. Now here, I want to kind of set the stage for you in this because right after Jesus is baptized, the Holy Spirit takes him into the wilderness for a 40-day fast. He'll drink water, but he's going to fast from food for 40 days. He obviously is going to be in a prayer time He's also going to be attacked by Satan and tempted in ways that you and I will never be tempted. And so in preparation to even going out into the desert, Jesus is already 
in a place of prayer, preparing his heart and his mind and to be ready for what lies ahead of him. He's in a place of prayer. Now, Jesus, we will find that if you go through the Gospels and you, you look at what Jesus was doing, he prayed all the time. He prayed when he chose the 12. The night before, he was going to choose the 12 out of all the disciples, the 12 that he would call the apostles later. He spent a night in prayer praying for who those 12 guys would be, including Judas. Think about that. Jesus spent time praying with the Father, and he's going to choose Judas, the one who's going to betray him and turn him over to be crucified. He already knew it. Jesus prayed before he fed the 5,000. Jesus prayed before he walked on water. After a full day of ministry, of healing people, I mean from sunrise to sunset, after he'd spent all that time and all that energy, after he's completely worn out and exhausted, he went to prayer afterwards. Jesus spent a lot of time in prayer. And, and it wasn't a new discipline to the disciples, you know, because now they're asking him to teach us to pray. But this isn't a new discipline to them. It's not something they haven't seen because as little boys growing up and going to the synagogue on a regular basis, they would be learning the, the prayers that they would have for special days and special events, maybe for meal times. And so they learned prayers, they memorized them, and then they would pray these, pray these prayers on different occasions. And so it wasn't like they weren't accustomed to praying. It wasn't like they didn't go to the synagogue and where the priest and the Levites were praying, and they were gathered around to listen to him pray. But the reason why they're asking Jesus to pray is because they have encountered Jesus having these deep, powerful, effective prayer times. What they're, what they're seeing with Jesus is so totally different than what they've seen with anybody else. Then comes the request of Jesus, Lord Teach us to pray. Um, I also want you to notice in this passage here, Luke 11, 1, it says that not only did they say teach us to pray, but as John taught his disciples. Also notice that the request is, is for them to be taught like John taught his disciples. Now, that doesn't mean that John had a better method or way of praying after all, you're not pitching the last prophet against the creator of the world when it comes. It's not like they throw down the gauntlet and have a prayer challenge. That's not what was going on. Um, it, it's not that John had a class, you know, that he taught as he was out in the wilderness on how to pray effectively. That's not what they're saying. What they are saying and what they mean by this is that some of them were actually the disciples of John prior to coming over and following Jesus, and they're going like, you know, John was in the process of teaching us how to pray. We see that you are a master at prayer, so would you do what John had started? Would you continue to teach us how to pray? Would you impart to us the secrets of prayer? And, and the reason they're asking that is because they're saying, we've been watching, we've seen that in some manner, the marvel and mystery of your character is linked with your prayer life. 
and it has made us aware how little we really know about prayer. So, Lord, would you teach us to pray? Now, there's a conclusion that's being drawn by the observation of the watching disciples when Jesus pray, uh, is in prayer, and it's this. Jesus is totally dependent upon the Father. There isn't anything He does where He's not being dependent totally upon God the Father to do what He's going to do. He, he won't do anything until He gets the okay from the Father. And we get that out of John chapter 5. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He is doing. And greater works than these will He show Him so that you may marvel. Get that point right there. It's highlighted for you that the Son says He can do nothing without the Father. Jesus knew the importance of being in continual communication and communion with the Father. That if he was going to accomplish anything of any significance, he had to be connected to God the Father. If Jesus was going to to, uh, create something that was of significance that was going to reflect the glory of God, He would have to do it through the Father. It wasn't as if Jesus, like a lot of times I think we do, we start doing stuff, and after we've got done doing whatever we're doing, ministry thing, then we turn around and we say, oh, by the way, God, would you please bless what I've just done? Jesus never did that. There's this perfect connection. Jesus wanted to understand. He wanted to to act under the authority of God. He never said anything that didn't come from the Father. There was this perfect connection and a perfect understanding of the Father's will, the Father's authority, the Father's words, so that Jesus only did what he saw and what he heard from the Father. In John 8, it says, Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. We would all do well to learn from Jesus. Not to say anything until God tells us to say something. It would probably keep us from getting into a world of trouble with careless words. This is is really fascinating to me because Jesus understood and knew the importance of this. The secret of prayer and of a prayer life is being connected to the Father. It is to practice the constant expectancy of attitude, which means that we are never very far away from the thought that God is working in us both to will and do His good pleasure. That's what God wants to do. But we don't know it if we're not connected to Him. If we're not interchanging thoughts and listening to what God has to say to us. Jesus did this because He believed what He preached. He said continually, the Son by Himself can do nothing. And those weren't just merely words. He was not just mouthing pious phrases like we often do. He was trying to make 
He wasn't just trying to make a good impression on those around him. He was saying something that absolutely startled them, but he meant it nonetheless. The son, by himself, can do nothing. I find that to be absolutely amazing because we have the Son of God who, when he was with the Father in pre-existent Christ, at the, at the moment of creation, he is the one that spoke the words and it happened. And what he's saying is, I only spoke those words because the Father told me what to speak. I'm not doing it because I felt like this is what I should do. Jesus is saying, I'm doing this because I want to, to make my Father glorious. Think of it. The Son of God, the perfect man, the man who adequately and continually fulfilled all of God's expectation for men, who was the constant delight of the Father's heart, who did always those things that pleased Him. And you ask yourself, how much did he personally, as a man, contribute to the mighty power and wisdom that occupied three years of ministry? How much did he do as a man himself? Nothing. He says that. He did nothing. The son by himself can do nothing. And again and again, he declared that to be true. John 14, he says, Do you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. You see, I think that a lot of times we have this this notion or this thought process going on in our minds when we think about what Jesus did and all the things that he accomplished is that God just kind of had him come to earth and then he turned him loose and he said, you go do whatever you want to do. You just go ahead and be whoever you want to be. You act the way you want to act. You walk where you want to walk. You do the healings you want to do. You do the the miracles that you want to do. You do all of that all on your own. I trust you, you're completely there. That is not the stance that Jesus took. He understands what it means to be under the authority of his Father. And so he's not, he's not just going to step out and do his own thing. It's out of this conscious, constant sense of a need that there arose this continuing attitude of prayer, a continuing expectation that if anything was going to be done, the Father would have to do it. That is why, that is what motivated his amazing prayer life and revealed that to him, prayer was absolutely necessary for everything. So now we've got the disciples. They have been with Jesus. They're watching Jesus. They're watching Jesus interact. They're, they're, they're looking for him in the early mornings and finding him in prayer. In the evenings, he says, you stay here, I'm going off to pray. Before he does a miracle, he prays. Before Lazarus comes out of the grave, he prays. And so they keep watching Jesus all this time, doing all these different things, where he is going to step up to pray, and they're seeing and hearing the importance of prayer that comes out of Jesus' mouth and out of his life, and out of that behavior of Jesus that he is showing to them, the continual habit of it, they say to him, Lord, teach us to pray. If there is any one prayer 
that burns in my heart, it is for every person that attends WRCC to have that prayer on their lips to Jesus, to God. For them to say, I am inadequate in my prayer life. Lord, teach me how to pray. But the brutal fact is, we do not know how to pray, neither as individuals or as a, a church, a corporate body. The proof that we don't know how to pray as individuals is found in the frustrations of our life. When Christ followers get hit with the difficulties of life and do not go to prayer immediately, they will drift off into discouragement, frustration, They'll feel feeble, powerless, fruitless in all that they try to do spiritually because they're doing it in the flesh and not under the power of the Holy Spirit with the, the blessing of the Father being poured out on them. Now, please understand what I'm saying. I am saying that life is both enjoyable and it is hard. It is filled with times of joy and with times of sorrow. My family right now is experiencing both the bittersweet of joy and sorrow. My sister, who is just, uh, well, she's older than I am. Yeah, she's probably 62 or 63. 63. Her husband, who she's been married to for 42 years, on Wednesday passed away. Uh, he, uh, cancer got a hold of him, took, took him. The bittersweet in all of this is he is with Jesus right now. He is celebrating a pain-free existence right now with Jesus. He's with my dad and with his dad and a lot of people you know who have gone before you. My brother-in-law, Don, isn't giving one thought about what's going on back here on earth. He is celebrating with the Son of God, the King of Kings. The, the bitterness of it is is that he left behind a family and grandchildren and his wife, who's probably going to wake up in three or four weeks and go, now what? Because that's the reality of it. So when we're hit with all those difficult things of life, if we don't get down on our knees and we start praying, we're going to find that we are just in a mess. We have this tendency, though. We call it, I call it the SOS prayer. And that prayer is when the hard things of life hit the fan and we need a prayer, so we throw it up real quick. But when life is good, we don't give God a second thought. You know who is the um, master at SOS prayers in the Bible? Peter. Hey, Jesus, that's you walking on the water. Let me come walk to you. Jesus is going like, come on, Pete, get out of the boat. Come for a stroll on the waves. Come and, come and be with me. And he gets out there, and he's looking at Jesus, and he's going like, yeah, this is pretty cool. And then he goes like this, the waves. And he starts to sink, and what does he do? SOS prayer. Lord, save me. <laughs> Boop. Jesus goes, yeah, give me your hand. I'll get you up. All right, good job, Pete. If you would have had a little more faith, you would have made it the whole way. And, and, and we have this tendency for us to be like Pete. 
at that moment when we need Jesus the most is when we finally throw up a prayer. Now listen, I know that there are expectations to this here in our church, and I thank God for them. There are a few among us who have learned something of the strength of the ministry of prayer in their individual lives. It is openly evident. There are those who have a joy and a glow in their experience that cannot be denied. They are, there are those who approach every circumstance with compelling, irresistible triumph that marks authentic faith in Christ and in their lives. And the ministry of prayer is very evident. But for most of us, we are marked with prayerlessness. Now, the proof that we don't pray corporately as a church is kind of in how you see what shows up here on on the days that we already have designated as prayer times. Our lives are busy. And so Monday at 4 o'clock, you're going like, you know what, I just can't get away from work to do that, and I just can't do it, you know, Monday at 4. Just just not a really good time for me. Tuesdays at noon. Well, you know, I only have a limited time of, for lunch on Tuesday, so I just really don't know, you know, to come in, and it's going to be really awkward. Um, we're going to, on June 23rd, on that Saturday, we are going to have a prayer time here at 7 o'clock. And, 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 and I, I please, I don't want to be the one that's making you feel a little uncomfortable. I hope that's the Holy Spirit doing that, because that's His job. But I think that if we want to see the hand of God move, then we need to come to the place where we move God's hand. And I believe that part of the problem that we're facing is an unswerving fact that in this vital area of prayer, we who are Christ followers, who are failing in prayer, it's simply because we have not seen yet what prayer can do. And I believe that when we see what God will do through prayer, and we're the recipients of God doing amazing things as we pray, it will bolster our prayer life, and we will find no greater joy than coming together as a group of people, and on the behalf of the city of Lander and Fremont County, we start asking for God's hand to move among the people who don't know him, and see who God will bring to us who needs Jesus. There's one thing that is immediate evident. When we come to the place where we say those words of the disciple and we will have taken the first step and the most important step towards discovering the power of prayer. When we come and we say to Jesus, teach us to pray, we're doing so out of a sense of need and prayer is simply the expression of human need to an eager father. Prayer is the cry of a beloved child to a father with a father's heart who is ready to pour out all that he has to give. And when we come to this prayer, Lord, teach me to prayer. That's the first prayer we pray. We are crying out of such a sense of need and God will deliver. So here's the question. What impressed the disciples as they watched Jesus pray and convinced them that this, his prayer life and his amazing power and wisdom were somehow together? Well, they first saw of, of all that Jesus was finding prayer in his life as a necessity. 
It was more than an occasional practice on his part. It was a lie, a lifetime, long habit. It was an attitude of mind and heart. It was an atmosphere in which he lived. It was the very air that he breathed. Everything he did arose out of his prayer. He literally prayed without ceasing. And Paul, the apostle, urges us to do the same thing. Pray without ceasing. So how did, how did Jesus pray without ceasing? And how do we pray without ceasing? Well, obviously, it's not always in a formal prayer. You don't always find Jesus down on his knees in a formal prayer time all the time. There were times when he wasn't in that formal prayer. He was doing other things. And it isn't that he's standing around um, with his hands folded and his head bowed and praying because if he did that, he would never get anything accomplished. And we're going like, yeah, you can't do that because you'll never go anywhere or get anything done. The other thing I want you to know, this is the thing that just kind of cracks me up a little bit. It, I, I found it on two different occasions, but there's probably more times than that, that that Jesus did this. But it says in the Gospels that Jesus, looking to heaven, said, Father, that's how he started his prayer. What do we do? We get around the table. All right, kids, hold your hands, close your eyes, and bow your head. And Jesus goes, looking up, he says, Father. Now, I want you to try this today. At lunchtime, don't make anybody close their eyes. And don't make anybody bow their head. Say, all right, everybody, open your eyes, look to heaven, and let's pray. It's going to freak you out. You know, a lot of times I think what happens is we think that our life is somehow busier than Jesus's. But here's the amazing thing about Jesus. He fulfilled his prayer life in the midst of an incredible busy life, of increasing pressure, of continual interruption. He never set out to accomplish something where someone didn't come and interrupt him from what he was already doing and asking him to come to some other place. As he ministered, he met growing opposition with increasing harassment and continual resistance to the, to the course he was taking, even sometimes from his own disciples. Yet in the midst of his, his life of in, incredible busyness and tremendous pressure and continuous interruption, he was constantly in prayer. He was praying in the Spirit when his hands were busy healing. He gave thanks when he was breaking bread and feeding the five thousands. At the tomb of Lazarus, he spoke the words, Lazarus, come out, in a dramatic display of power. He gave thanks to the Father openly. And when the Greeks came and wanted to see Jesus, the message was brought to him and he immediately responded with one prayer, Father, he said, glorify your name. There was a continual sense of expectation that the Father would be working through him, and therefore he was praying in this attitude all the time. Now, here's our problem. We have such an unexplainable attitude of self sufficiency. Remember, what did Jesus say? The son cannot do anything on his own. And what do we say? 
I can do it all on my own. We, we are the created. Jesus is the creator. And he has this dependency upon God, and we have self-sufficiency. Now, it's true. There are going to be times when we go like, I'm at the end of my rope, and I don't know what else to do. And so we get down on our knees, and we start to pray a fervent prayer because we are in our greatest moment of need at that time. And that's when we finally drop to our needs and we start to pray. But more times than not, we look at it and we go, I can do this and I can do that and I can do this. I'm a talented guy. God's gifted me with this. He's given me these abilities and these skills. Um, I can do all this stuff. And then we bump into something that we go like, "Mm, I don't think I can do this one or I've tried to do this one. And now I'm at the end of my rope and I can't do anything about it. So, well, last resort. Can you do anything to help me out, God? It's because we have created this self-sufficiency in our own lives that we can do it all. Um, the secret of the life of Jesus is that he never said that or even thought it once. He never said of himself, my training, my background, my knowledge, my ability that God has given me as a man makes me sufficient for certain things on my own. The rest I'll depend upon God for. He never said that. He never thought that. He lived a life of total dependency on the Father. On one occasion, Jesus was preaching um, to a great multitude of people. He was down at the Sea of Galilee. And he's on the edge of the sea, and the people have come, and as I can imagine in my own mind, is that the the grass kind of pulled up away from the edge of the sea and created a little natural amphitheater. And so there's Jesus at the edge of the water. He's teaching, and he's, he's preaching a message. And all of a sudden, he starts off with a few people, maybe, you know, 50, 60 people. And then it's 100, then it's 200, then it's 500, and then it's 1,500, and then it's 2,000 people. And they're pressing in to hear Jesus, and now people can't see him, and they can't hear him. And so what, is, what does Jesus do? Because... Pete, he's sitting over there in his boat. He's going, hey, I'm different than the rest of those people that have to sit up there. I got my own boat. I'm going to sit right next to Jesus. I'm going to hear the whole thing. And so Jesus turns around and he says, Peter, would you just push, push out into the lake a little bit? And Jesus got in the boat. And Peter pushed out into the lake. Jesus got a ways away from the shore, still not real deep, shallow enough. And there Pete sat in the boat. And Jesus continued to teach to the crowds. Now imagine Peter. Here's Jesus who he has claimed to be the son of God. He's the king of kings. He's got this unbelievable ministry going on. And Jesus turns around and says, I need your help. And Pete's going like, yeah, I get to help Jesus. Jesus has finally recognized I've got something to offer to him. I've got it right here. You get in my boat. I'll get you. Listen, I'm an expert with a boat. You're not going to drift in or out from the shore I may have to use the oars just a little bit to keep us here. I might drop the anchor, but they'll still swing around. But I'm going to keep it so you're facing the right way. Peter, an expert in the boat. And he was as proud as punch to be serving Jesus in this manner. Jesus finishes his, his teaching. And then he sends, he sends the crowds away. He dismisses the crowds. And then Jesus gets out of the boat. And he goes to the shore and he turns around to Peter. And he says, hey, Peter. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to push your boat out into the deep. And then I want you to take your net 
and I want you to cast it over to the right side and catch some fish. You know what Peter's thinking about that time? Peter's going like, well, you know what, Jesus? I know that you're a great teacher. You certainly know how to speak for, uh, to men far better than I do. You're a mighty man of power. You're a man of incredible wisdom. You obviously know the secrets that, that we know nothing about. But hey, Jesus, when it comes to fishing, you're talking to an expert. I've grown up on this lake. My dad taught me about fishing. I know this lake so well, I know where the fish are, and I know where they are not. I know when they're feeding and what they're feeding on, and I know when they are not feeding. So Jesus, probably the best thing you can do is you can just keep the teaching and leave the fishing to the experts. Now, he didn't say that, but it's implied here. And Jesus comes back, and, and, and here's what happens, because he's, you know, Peter's going like, all right, Jesus, I know that's what you're saying, but I, let me just inform you something about fishing, especially on the Sea of Galilee. Your best fishing is all night long. That's when the fish are most active. It's when they come off the bottom of the lake and they rise to the top. That's when you throw your nets in all night long. And by the way, Jesus, we've been fishing all night and caught nothing. Now you want me to throw my net over? And so Peter kind of goes like, all right, I'm going to humor Jesus because I'm going to do it. And so Peter said, at your word, I will let down my nets. At your word. It's not like, hey, that's a great idea, Jesus. Wished I would have thought of it. You know, these things kind of happen in your family. Because there are things that have to be done around the house. And one member of the family, and I'm not going to say who she is, will come to you and say, by the way, here's what you need to do. You need to do this, 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 and this. And by the way, this is how you need to do this last one. Dun, 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 dun. And you look at her, I mean, you look at the other person, and you say, oh, thank you. I just didn't get it. I'm the only one? Come on, Brian, give me an amen or something, man. <laughs> That's kind of what Peter was like. He was kind of going like, you really don't need to tell me what to do. I know how to fish. So he let down the net, and it enclosed a great host of fish, so large of a catch, when you're not supposed to be fishing, that the net started to rip. And he had to pull it in. He had to get help. And it filled his boat halfway. He's up to his knees in fish in his boat. And here's the response of Peter. He says, Lord, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. What did he mean by that? What did Peter really mean when he said that? Here's what he meant. Lord, I see what you mean. I see that even in those areas where I think myself to be sufficient, I need you. 
is it right now in your life where you feel like you are so sufficient that you don't even ever think once about engaging in a conversation with God about what's going on? What is it that you do so well? What is the task that you can do in your sleep and you go, I am, I've never asked God to help me here and I don't know that I ever will ask God to help me here. What is it that keeps you in your pride and saying, I'm sufficient enough, I don't need God's help. Only weak people need God's help or people in great need. What is that one thing? Because here is what I really believe Jesus is teaching us. This is the one thing that we must learn, that there is no activity of life which does not require our prayer to him. Everything we do, we need to come with a sense of expectation of God at work in us. It's it's not this, what the, the disciples felt, and it may have even been Peter as he watched the Lord praying. He knew that to him, Prayer was an option, and that's what it often is to us. It becomes an option. He prayed like he felt it. He prayed when he thought it was necessary. He, in thinking that the prayer was just designed for an emergency use only, for the big problems of life. What we need is we need prayer to be the first words out of our mouth on every situation. Get it like this. Think about this that phone call that you have to make. You're not going to make the right phone call if you don't spend the first few minutes praying before you pick up the phone. It will never have the effect it ought to have except for when my heart looks to God and says, speak through me in this moment. You're going to have to have a difficult conversation with a coworker with your boss, with your employee, with your spouse, with your children, with your mom, with your dad. You will have that difficult conversation. And if you do not spend the first moments prior to having that conversation asking God to work through your mouth, that conversation is more times than not going to hit the ditch. And it's going to turn out really bad. What's the task that you've done that you've not asked God to help you? What's the ministry that you expect to do even though you've never invited Jesus to be the minister? Remember, Jesus said the son by himself can do nothing. The interview that you're going to have or the one you're going to conduct needs prayer. The report that you have to make at your job needs prayer. The room that you're going to sweep needs prayer. The walk you're going to take, the game you're about to play, all these things of life still require prayer, but we go about our life as though God doesn't exist. And you know why that is? Let me boil it down to one little simple phrase. It's a book I've been reading. It's because we're too big and our God is too small. We can do more than God can ever do through us. We're bigger than God, and the only time we ever get God involved is when we feel out of necessity the best thing to do right now is pray because I don't know what else to do, and I can't fix it anyway. 
How can the Son of God need prayer for every aspect of life, and yet we only need prayer for some of the things we try to handle but cannot? Lord, forgive us for our stubborn, foolish, prayerless life. Amen? Let me remind you. Monday, 4 p.m., women's prayer time. Tuesday, 12 noon, June 23rd, 7 p.m. here at the church. We're going to move into...